Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 13 of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is The Final Battle. In the last episode, we heard how the Turkish Sultan Mehmet II, after seven weeks of besieging Constantinople without any real success, had a moment of doubt about whether to continue with the siege. Indeed, his Grand Vizier Halil, who had always been opposed to destroying this last remnant of Byzantium, implored him to abandon it before he suffered a more major defeat which might jeopardise his rule. We ought to remember that Mehmet was only 21 years old and his Ottoman predecessors had in the past attacked and failed to capture Constantinople, but his main general, Zaganos Pasha, disagreed and urged the Sultan to make one last massive attack on the city, which he said his troops were clamouring for. This was probably true because, of course, one of the main attractions of this whole campaign for the Turkish army was the huge amount of booty that the ordinary soldiers were hoping to find when they sacked the city. So Mehmet decided to make one last attack and set about preparing his vast army for this. But the Byzantines and their Venetian and Genoese allies were ready for this. And we'll hear about the defenders' extraordinary bravery and defiance as they beat back wave after wave of Turkish troops until luck turned against them in a tragic twist of fate. So let's dive straight into my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. The afternoon of Monday the 28th of May had been clear and bright. As the sun began to sink towards the western horizon, it shone straight into the faces of the defenders on the walls, almost blinding them. It was then that the Turkish camp sprang into activity. Men came forward in thousands to complete the filling of the fosse, while others brought up cannons and war machines. The sky clouded over soon after sunset, and there was a heavy shower of rain, but the work went on uninterrupted, and the Christians could do nothing to hinder it. At about half-past one in the morning, the Sultan judged that everything was ready, and gave the order for the assault. The sudden noise was horrifying all along the line of the walls. The Turks rushed into the attack, screaming their battle cries while drums and trumpets urged them on. The Christian troops had been waiting silently, but when the watchman on the tower gave the alarm. The churches near the walls began to ring their bells, and church after church throughout the city took up the warning sound until every belfry was clanging. Three miles away in the Church of the Holy Wisdom, or Hagia Sophia as it is known in Greek, the worshippers knew that the battle had begun. Every man of fighting age returned to his post, and women nuns amongst them hurried to the walls to help bring up stones and beams to strengthen the defences, and pails of water to refresh the defenders. Old folk and children came out of their houses and crowded into the churches, trusting that the saints and angels 
would protect them. Some went to their parish church, others to the tall church of St Theodosia by the Golden Horn. It was her feast day on the Tuesday, and the building was decked with roses gathered from the gardens and the hedgerows. Surely she would not abandon her worshippers. Others went back to the great cathedral, remembering an old prophecy that said, although the infidel might advance through the city right into the holy building, there the angel of the Lord would appear and drive them back with his bright sword. All through the dark hours before dawn, the congregations waited and prayed. There was no time for prayer at the walls. The Sultan had made his plans with care. Despite his arrogant words to his army, experience had taught him to respect the enemy. On this occasion, he would wear them down before risking his best troops in the battle. It was his irregulars, the Bashi Bazooks, whom he first sent forward. There were many thousands of them, adventurers from every country and race, many of them Turks, but many more from Christian countries. Countries, Slavs, Hungarians, Germans, Italians, and even Greeks, all of them ready enough to fight against their fellow Christians in view of the pay that the Sultan gave them and the booty that he promised. Most of them provided their own weapons, which were an odd assortment of scimitars and slings, bows, and a few aquabuses, but a large number of scaling ladders had been distributed amongst them. They were unreliable troops, excellent at their first onrush, but easily discouraged if they were not at once successful. Knowing this, Mehmet placed behind them a line of military police, armed with whips and maces whose orders were to urge them on and to strike and punish any who showed signs of wavering. Behind the military police were the Sultan's own janissaries, his best troops. If any frightened irregular made his way through the police, they would cut him down with their scimitars. The Bashi Bazook's attack was launched all along the line, but it was only present hard in the Lycus Valley. Elsewhere, the walls were still too strong, and they were attacked chiefly with the purpose of distracting the defenders from going to reinforce their comrades in that vital section. There, the fighting was fierce. The Bashi Bazooks were up against soldiers far better armed and far better trained than themselves, and they were further handicapped by their numbers. They were continually in each other's way. Stones hold against them could kill or disable many of them at a single time. Though a few attempted to retreat, most of them kept going, fixing their ladders to the walls and the stockade, and clambering up only to be cut down before they reached the top. The Genoese Justiniani and his Byzantines and Italians were supplied with all the muskets and culverins that could be found in the city. The Byzantine emperor himself came to encourage them. After nearly two hours of fighting, Mehmet ordered the Bashi Bazooks to retire. They had been checked and repulsed, but they had served their purpose in wearying the enemy. Some of the Christians hoped that this might be just an isolated night attack intended to test their strength, and all of them hoped for a moment of rest. It was not granted to them. They scarcely had time to reform their lines and replace beams and barrels of earth on the stockade before a second attack was launched. Regiments of Anatolian Turks from Aishak's army, easily recognised by their special uniforms and breastplates, came pouring down the hill from outside the civil gate of St Romanus into the valley and wheeled around to face the stockade. Once more, the bells of the churches near the walls rang out to give the alarm 
arm, but the sound was drowned by the booming of Auburn's great cannon and its fellows as they began fresh to pound the walls. Within a few minutes, the Anatolians had rushed into the assault. Unlike the irregular Bashi bazooks, they were well-armed and well-disciplined, and all of them devout Muslims, eager for the glory of being the first to enter the Christian city of Constantinople. With the wild music of their trumpeters and pipers to encourage them, they hurled themselves at the stockade, climbing over each other's shoulders in their efforts to fix their ladders onto the barrier and hack their way over the top. In the faint light of flares, with clouds continually veiling the moon, it was hard to see what was happening. The Anatolians, like the Irregulars before them, were at a disadvantage on that narrow front because of their numbers. Their discipline and their tenacity only made their losses heavier as the defenders flung stones down on them and pushed back their ladders or fought with them hand to hand. About an hour before dawn, when this second attack was beginning to falter, a cannonball from Auburn's cannon landed fully upon the stockade, bringing it down for many yards of its length. There was a cloud of dust as the rubble and earth were flung into the air and the black smoke of the gunpowder blinded the defenders. A band of 300 Anatolians rushed forward through the gap that had been made, shouting that the city was theirs. But... With the Byzantine emperor at their head, the Christians closed around them, slaughtering the greater part of them and forcing the others back to the fosse. The Czech discomforted the Anatolians. The attack was called off and they retired to their lines. With cries of triumph, the defenders once more set about repairing the stockade. The Turks had been no more successful on other sectors of the wall. Along the southern stretch of the land walls, Ishak was able to keep up enough pressure to prevent the defenders from moving men to the Lycus Valley. But with his own best troops gone to fight there, he couldn't make a serious attack. Along the Marmora, Hamza Bay had difficulty in bringing his ships close into the shore. The few landing parties that he was able to send were easily repulsed by the monks to whom the defence had been entrusted. Trusted. There were also small attacks along the whole line of the Golden Horn, but no real attempt at a major assault. Around the Blackenai Quarter, the fighting was fiercer on the low ground by the harbour. The troops that Zagonos had brought across the bridge kept up a constant attack, as did Karajapasha's men higher up the slope. But Minotto and his Venetians were able to hold their section of the walls against Zagonos and the Bocciardi brothers against Karadja. The Sultan was said to be indignant at the failure of his Anatolians, but it is probable that he intended them, like the irregulars before them, to wear out the enemy rather than themselves to enter the city. He had promised a great prize to the first Turkish soldier who should successfully break through the Byzantine stockade, and he wished the privilege to go to some member of his own favourite regiment, his Janissaries. The time had now come to send them into battle. He was anxious, for if they failed him, it would scarcely be possible to continue the siege. He gave his orders quickly, before the Christians had time to refresh themselves and do more than a few rough repairs to the stockade. A rain of missiles, arrows, javelins, 
stones and bullets fell upon them, and behind this rain the Janissaries advanced at the double, not rushing in wildly as the Bashi Bazooks had done, but keeping their ranks in perfect order, unbroken by the missiles of the enemy. The martial music that urged them on was so loud that the sound could be heard between the roar of the guns from right across the Bosphorus. Mehmet himself led them as far as the fosse and stood there shouting encouragement as they passed him. Wave after wave of these fresh, magnificent and stoutly armoured men rushed up to the stockade to tear at the barrels of earth that surmounted it, to hack at the beams that supported it and to place their ladders against it where it could not be brought down, each wave making way without panic for its successor. The Christians were exhausted. They had fought with only a few minutes respite for more than four hours, but they fought with desperation, knowing that if they gave way, it would be the end. Behind them in the city, the church bells were clanging again, and a great murmur of prayer rose to heaven. The fighting along the stockade was hand-to-hand now. For an hour or so, the Janissaries could make no headway. The Christians began to think that the onslaught was weakening a little, but fate was against them. At the corner of the Black and Eye Wall, just before it joined the double Theodosian Wall, there was, half hidden by a tower, a small sally port known as the Kirkaporta. It had been closed up many years earlier, but old men remembered it. Just before the siege began, it had been reopened to allow sorties into the enemy's flank. During the fighting, the Bokiades and their men had made effective use of it against Karadja Pasha's troops, but now someone returning from a sortie forgot to bar the little gate after him. Some Turks noticed the opening and rushed through it into the courtyard behind it and began to climb up a stairway leading to the top of the wall. The Christians who were just outside the gate saw what was happening and crowded back to retake control of it and to prevent other Turks from following. In the confusion, some 50 Turks were left inside the wall where they could have been surrounded and eliminated if at that moment a worse disaster had not occurred. It was just before sunrise that a shot fired at close range from a culverin struck the Genoese leader, Justiniani and pierced his breastplate, bleeding copiously and obviously in great pain. He begged his men to take him off the battlefield. One of them went to the Byzantine emperor who was fighting nearby to ask for the key of a little gate that led through the inner wall. Constantine hurried to his side to plead with him not to desert his post, but Justiniani's nerve was broken. He insisted on flight. The gate was opened and his bodyguard carried him into the city through the streets down to the harbour where they placed him on a Genoese ship. His troops noticed his going. Some of them may have thought that he had retreated to defend the inner wall, but most of them concluded that the battle was lost. Someone shouted out in terror that the Turks had crossed the wall. Before the little gate could be shut again, the Genoese streamed headlong through it. The Byzantine emperor and his Byzantine troops were left on the field alone. From across the fosse, the sultan noticed the Christians' panic, crying, The city is ours. He ordered the Janissaries to charge again and beckoned on a company led by a giant soldier called Hassan. Hassan hacked his way over the top of the broken stockade and was deemed to have won 
the promised prize of entering the Christian city. Some 30 janissaries followed him. The Byzantines fought back furiously. Hassan himself was forced to his knees by a blow from a stone and a Byzantine killed him. 17 of his comrades perished with him, but the remainder held their positions on the stockade and many more janissaries crowded to join them. The Byzantines fought heroically, but the weight of numbers forced them back to the inner wall. In front of it was another ditch, which had been deepened in places to provide earth for reinforcing the stockade. Many of the Byzantines were forced back into these holes and could not easily clamber out with the greater inner wall rising behind them. The Turks, who were now on top of the stockade, fired down on them and massacred them. Soon many of the janissaries reached the inner wall and climbed up it unopposed. Suddenly someone looked up and saw Turkish flags flying from the tower above the Kirkaporta. The cry went up, the city is taken. While he was pleading with Justiniani, the Byzantine emperor had been told of the Turks' entry through the Kirkaporta. He rode there at once, but he came too late. Panic had spread to some of the Genoese there. In the confusion, it was impossible to close the gate. The Turks came pouring through, and the Bocciardi's men were too few now to push them back. Constantine turned his horse and galloped back to the Lycus Valley and the breaches there in the stockade. With him was the gallant Spaniard, who claimed to be his cousin, Don Francisco of Toledo, and his own cousin, Theophilus Paleologus, and a faithful comrade-at-arms, John Dalmata. Together, they tried to rally the Byzantines, but in vain. The slaughter had been too great. They dismounted, and for a few minutes, the four of them held the approach to the gate through which Justiniani had been carried. But the defence was broken now. The gate was jammed with Christian soldiers trying to make their escape as more and more janissaries fell on them. Theophilus shouted that he would rather die than live and disappeared into the oncoming hordes of Turks. Constantine himself knew now that the empire was lost and he had no wish to survive it. He flung off his imperial insignia and with Don Francisco and John Dalmata still at his side, he followed Theophilus into battle. He was never seen again. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. The cry that the city was lost went echoing through the streets. From the Golden Horn and from its shores, Christians and Turks alike could see Turkish flags flying on the high towers of Blackenai, where the Byzantine imperial eagle and the Venetian lion of St. Mark had flown only a few minutes earlier. Here and there, the fighting continued for a while. On the walls near the Kirkaporta, the Bocciardi brothers and their men battled on, but soon they realised that no more could be done, so they cut their 
way through the enemy down to the Golden Horn. Paolo was captured and killed, but Antonio and Troilo reached a Genoese boat, which ferried them across, unnoticed by the Turkish ships, to the safety of Pera. On their flank in the Palace of Blackenai, Minotto and his Venetians had been surrounded. Many were killed. The Bailey himself and his leading nobles were taken prisoner. Signals reporting the entry through the walls were flashed round the whole Turkish army. The Turkish ships in the Golden Horn hastened to land their men on the foreshore and to attack the harbour walls. They met with little resistance, except by the Hariah Gate. There, the companies of two Cretan ships blockaded themselves in three towers and refused to surrender. Elsewhere, the Byzantines had fled to their homes in the hope of protecting their families, and the Venetians took to their ships. It was not long before a company of Turks had forced its way through the Plataea Gate at the foot of the valley still dominated by the great ancient aqueduct of Valens. Another company came through the Hariah Gate. Wherever they entered, detachments were sent along within the walls to fling open other gates for their comrades who were waiting outside. Nearby, seeing that all was lost, local fishermen opened the gates of the Patreon quarter themselves on the promise that their houses would be spared. Along the stretch of the land wall south of the Lycus, the Christians had repelled all the Turkish attacks, but now regiment after regiment was entering through the gaps in the stockade and fanning out on either side to open all the gates. The soldiers on the walls found themselves surrounded. Many were killed in trying to escape from the trap, but most of the commanders, including Filippo Contarini and Demetrius Cantacuzenos, were captured alive. Off the Marmora shore, Hamza Bay's ships, too, saw the signals and sent landing parties to the walls. At Studion and Samathia, there seems to have been no resistance. The defenders surrendered at once in the hope that their homes and churches would escape pillage. On their left, the Ottoman pretender Prince Orhan and his Turks fought on, knowing what fate would await them if they fell into the Sultan's hands. And the Catalans stationed below the old imperial palace resisted until they were all captured or killed. On the Acropolis, Cardinal Isidore judged that it would be prudent to abandon his post, he disguised himself and attempted to escape. The Sultan kept control of some of his regiments to act as his escort and as military police, but most of his troops were already eager to begin the looting. The sailors were especially impatient, fearing that the soldiers would forestall them, hoping that the boom would prevent the Christian ships from escaping out of the harbour and that they could capture them at their leisure. They abandoned their ships to scramble ashore. Their greed saved many Christian lives, while a number of the Greek and Italian sailors, including Trevisano himself were captured before they could escape from the walls. Others were able to join the skeleton crews left on their ships, unimpeded by any Turkish action, and prepare them for battle if need be. Others were able to scramble onto the ships before they sailed or to swim out them, like the Florentine Tetaldi, when he saw that the city had fallen. Alviso Diedo, as commander of the fleet, sailed over in a small boat to Pera to ask the Genoese authorities there whether they intended to advise their fellow Genoese to stay in the harbour and fight or to make for the open sea. His Venetian ships, he promised, would cooperate with whatever decision they made. The leader of the Genoese colony at Pera called the Podesta recommended that an embassy should go to the Sultan to inquire whether he would let all the ships go free or whether he would risk war with Genoa and Venice. The suggestion was hardly possible at such a moment and the Genoese sailors in 
the ships anchored below the walls of Pera made it known that they intended to sail away and they wished to have the support of the Venetians. On their insistence, Diego was allowed to leave in his own ship. He made straight for the boom, the great iron chain across the Golden Horn, which was still closed. Two of his sailors hacked with axes at the rope that bound it to the walls of Pera and it drifted away on its floats. Signalling to the ships in the harbour to follow him, Diego sailed through the gap. Seven Genoese ships from Pera sailed close behind him and soon afterwards they were joined by most of the Venetian warships, by four or five of the Byzantine emperor's galleys and by one or two Genoese warships. They had all waited as long as they dared to pick up refugees who swam out to them and after they had passed through the boom, the whole flotilla remained for an hour or so at the entrance of the Bosphorus to see if any more ships could escape. Then they took advantage of the strong north wind that was blowing to sail down the Sea of Memora, through the Dardanelles and to freedom. Meanwhile, so many of Hamza Bey's ships had been deserted by his sailors in their rush for plunder that he was powerless to stop the flight of Diego's fleet. With those of his ships that were still manned, he sailed around over the broken boom into the Golden Horn. There in the harbour, he trapped the Christian ships that were left, another four or five Byzantine galleys, two or three Genoese galleys, and all the unarmed Venetian merchantmen. Most of them were crowded with refugees so far beyond their capacity that they would never have been able to put out to sea. A few small boats still managed to slip across to Pera, but in the full light of day it was no longer easy to elude the Turks. By noon, the whole harbour and everything in it was in the hands of the Turks. There remained, however, one small pocket of resistance in the city. The Cretan sailors on the three towers near to the entrance of the Golden Horn still held out and could not be dislodged. Early in the afternoon, seeing that they were completely isolated, they grudgingly surrendered to the Sultan's officers on condition that their lives and property were untouched. Their two ships were beached below the towers. So impressed were the Turks by the bravery of the Cretans that they allowed them to set sail for Crete as free men. But this small victory counted for nothing against the knowledge that the Turks had now finally overthrown the once mighty Byzantine state, the inheritor of ancient Rome and the lantern-bearer through the Middle Ages of that greatest of all civilizations that had once been ancient Greece. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And then I wanted to make a little announcement that the next episode will be the last in this podcast and we'll conclude with some thoughts on what the Crusades achieved or didn't achieve, their place in history 
and of course how they affected Byzantium. But if you've enjoyed this podcast, then I want to tell you about an exciting new podcast which I will launch with the last episode. It's called The Fall of the Roman Empire, and it'll tell the extraordinary story of how Rome collapsed, which is not just one of the most exciting and intriguing stories in the whole of history, in my opinion, but it's also one of the most important in terms of its legacy for the modern world. So I really hope you'll try it out and see if you like it. And I'll tell you more next time when I'll publish a couple of episodes. See you then. <laughs>